0: Hey there, happy August, end of summer. Uh, We are back with uh, next episode of Chief End. um, After a little summer hiatus, gallivanting around the southeastern United States and really kind of having a uh, laid back summer. um, Trying to uh, get, now that school's back in, uh, with the kids uh, moving forward with... um, getting back in the routine of things, as they would say. Uh, So excited to be podcasting again. Hope everybody had a great summer. Um, If you are new to the podcast, it is called Chief End, and you can find out more about it at chiefend.org. And the name of the podcast derives from Uh, the famous catechism which asks the question what is the chief end of man and the answer in the catechism is that the chief end of man is to glorify God uh, by enjoying him forever and we are in full agreement with that statement uh, here at chief end but also believe that part of glorifying God or the other side to the same coin of glorifying God is humility so that's kind of the, the main idea that we try to, you know, explore and at least that's the main idea that we try to keep this thing on the rails. Um, if it does go off the rails at times, uh, it's because we're losing sight of that idea. But the, the whole idea is, um, you know, that, that man in this life, mankind, men, women, children, whoever, that humans should be humble and, um, and I think our ob- main observation is that the American Church, American Evangelicalism, is kind of counter to that point. Uh, American Evangelicalism is sort of promoting a culture that is opposite to humility, um, and I think that that is fairly, uh, fairly clear, fairly self-evident when you look around at the you know po- at the popular churches around the country that are, you know, filled with pulpits with guys that, you know, make, uh, they, they they produce a very sensual public image, uh, bulging biceps in the case of Stephen Furtick and Tulian Tavichkin, Chavichkin religion, whatever his name is, uh, who's actually trying to climb himself back into the saddle. Um, I've been referring to him as Tulian with it spelled T O O L. Um, he came out two days ago with a, with along with another pastor who was accused of of an affair in his church. So you basically have two pastors who've been accused, uh, of uh, and and resigned because of affairs with women in their churches. In Tulian and this other guy whose last name was Bird, I haven't heard of him previously, but they came out and they said that it's anti-Christian for Christians to uh, not. Except fallen pastors. And I mean, hello, red lights all over the place. Um, And it was encouraging to me that the top comment on that particular article on ChristianPost.com was the guy was making the point that, hey, yeah, are these men, you know, can, can these men be forgiven? Yes. Can they be restored to fellowship? Yes. But they have. Disqualified themselves from speaking from the pulpit, and his final statement was, "They need to move on and find a different vocation." Amen, to that, brother anonymous commenter man. Um, you know, if you if you're if you're a pastor, a famous pastor, even a even a non-famous pastor, if you're a pastor like Tullian and this Mr. Bird guy, and you're making a, a profit off the gospel, number one. But then you, you know, as bad enough as it is, but then you turn it around and you begin to uh, manipulate and seduce multiple women in your congregation and have sexual relations with them, that's morally disqualifying. I don't care how you try to spin it at some point down the road, that's morally disqualifying. Yes, God has forgiveness for that. Yes, that's who Jesus came into the world to save, is sinners, but... to to use that as a springboard into, oh, now you must accept me as a leader in the Christian community again. I wholeheartedly reject that. And I think that the church would be uh, better off if more and more Christians wholeheartedly rejected that idiotic notion uh, that forgiveness automatically means restoration to a position of pastoral leadership. I find that Noxious? I, I want to always pronounce that word, and I, I don't think I ever say it correctly. Heading to the trusty iPad, noxious. I'm pretty sure that's the word I want, noxious, N-O-X-I-O-U-S. It means harmful, poisonous, or very unpleasant, noxious. Yeah, it's the right word. Why do I doubt my intelligence? <laughs> Because it's failed me many, many a time, that's why. Uh, So I guess that's coming back into the podcasting saddle. That's the uh, first maybe relevant uh, evangelical news item up for bid in the showcase showdown. Uh, Is Tulian saying that uh, it's anti-Christian to deny him uh, and other disgraced leaders their due place in leading again? Uh, As I've said before, you can go pound sand. Uh, because that is a, not only is it a noxious idea, um, it's decidedly unbiblical. I mean, when you look at the the moral, moral requirements in the New Testament that are outlined, it says that an overseer must be the husband of one wife, blameless. And we could go on and on and on. Well, knocking boots with multiple women in your congregation pretty much disqualifies you on those two grounds of being the husband of one wife and blameless. So I I, w- I would say that it takes you out of that category and it puts you into the womanizing Tiger Woods adulterous sex mongering category. And I don't see Either of those, any of those words being listed in the requirements for being an overseer. Um, I mean, we can double check that. I can open up my Bible, but I'm pretty sure Paul the Apostle does not say that sex mongers uh, can, that being a sex monger is one of the prerequisites or requirements for being a pastor. I mean, maybe I don't understand my Greek well enough, but uh, I'm pretty sure that you can't translate any of those things to being an adulteress. Uh, manipulative sex monger. Um, if you know Greek better than I do and you want to correct me on that, please uh, email me. Questions, uh, at podcast at chiefend.org, podcast at chiefend.org. So we have that. Um, but what I do want to talk about today, and it's the title of this particular episode, I'm calling this episode Sovereignty Switch. Sovereignty switch and the first thing that might pop into your mind is maybe a light switch, you know, like on your wall, you flick it on, flick it off, maybe a blinker switch in your car. Um, but I'm not really talking about a switch that we need to turn on or off, I'm talking about a switch like in an exchange, like we need to switch positions of something. And this is a, an idea that I've been ruminating on uh, over the summer. And It's come about from just observing sort of old hymns and contrasting them with the Instagram message of the modern day gospel. And to get right to the point, if I were to encapsulate sort of the sentiment of the old hymns, I would be hard-pressed, and you would likely be hard-pressed, to find a better Summation of the sentiment of the Christian life, as viewed through a pre-celebrity pastor lens, uh, than the words from the hymn that say, "Quote whatever my God ordains is right." End quote. And that's a very famous hymn. I'm undoubtedly you've heard that hymn before. You've sung that line at some point. Um, probably after the 9-11 attacks or at a funeral or after some disastrous thing that happened, you know, we we sort of have this blip on the radar screen of saying, oh, wow, we should be humble when, you know, life doesn't go our way and tragedies take place and and we are personally injured and, and fearful uh, from events that are outside of our control. We have a, a tendency in America to kind of have a little, you know, a minor blip on the screen of humility. Oh, geez, we can't control every detail of our life and our nation. So, oh, geez, maybe we should just have a little bit of humility and say, oh, yes, whatever my God ordains is right. Um, But then once the storm blows over uh, and we assume a feeling of confidence again and determination again, that sort of falls by the wayside. And it's what you see in what I'm calling, I'm starting to call it the Instagram gospel uh, because all all these pastors that are rising to fame and virality, (laughs) uh, lots of likes, lots of followers um, in the Christian community at least, their entire message is completely opposite that sentiment. Their message is not whatever my God ordains is right. But if you listen with a discerning ear, not even a discerning ear, just with a casual ear, it's not even like you have to be well-versed in dissecting BS from the pulpit. Um, Just listen. And, And the message which is prevailing in the church today, at least in popular evangelical circles, is whatever my heart desires is right, and then I will insist that either I, myself, or God makes that happen. Whatever my heart tells me is right, whatever I desire, whatever I can dream, that's right, and I will go about making sure that that becomes a reality. And so God becomes, in many ways, our cosmic errand boy. He becomes I don't even want to say butler because I think that's too dignified for how many Christians in America view God. They they don't I don't think they even view him as a butler. I think I think we're more prone these days to view God as some sort of undocumented, low-wage, illegal immigrant worker who we're keeping off the books so that we don't have to pay. Taxes and file paperwork, which would expose the fact that you know, this, this unpaid worker is, is doing our bidding, um, which is really disgusting when you stop and think about it, that, you know, that we view God in these instances as being the sort of catalyst for making whatever our, our heart desires become a reality for us. And when you stop and think about what those desires typically entail, it's always some sort of uh, influence or some sort of level of prestige or some sort of success level. Um, and, you know, God dares you to dream big. So the sovereignty switch we need is not an on-off thing. It's it's actually an exchange. Um, we have exchanged the idea that whatever God ordains is right, and it is our role as the creature to humbly submit to that providential ordination, and we've flipped it, We've, we've exchanged that for the idea that whatever my heart can conjure up as being something I deeply want, that then that is right, and God will ordain it because he's my errand boy, and he I snap my fingers and he does what, he, uh, what I beckon him to do. And it's really deplorable. I mean, I know Hillary Clinton said that Trump's followers were deplorable, which was dumb. But the concept that the creature would assume the position of turning the creator into our cosmic low-wage worker uh, is really, really deplorable. It's despicable. And because I really believe in the benefit of words meaning what they actually mean, we'll Google deplorable. And it says, deserving strong condemnation, shockingly bad in quality. So it's pretty much a recipe. If you want a surefire recipe to be an anemic, do I need to Google anemic as well? An anemic, malnourished, ineffective, petulant, immature, waste of space Christian. Then set about continuing down the path of trying to make God be lower than a butler in your life. Try to continue to insist that your heart's desires are correct and God's desires can be damned. Who cares what the Lord ordains because all he ordains is what I want. Uh, That's a surefire recipe to be a disastrous Christian in the world. It's a surefire recipe to be Continually discontented—it's a surefire recipe to be continually disappointed—and um, it's likely a surefire recipe to end up, or at least get on the similar path as as Tullian with two O's and this Mister Bird guy, because even though they are preaching the gospel, and Paul does seem to have some sort of catch-all sort of uh, just write off, you know, in Philippians when he says, "Well, there's some that preach." Christ for profit, but as long as they're preaching Christ. He sort of just assumes, yes, there's always gonna be clown faces that preach Christ for profit, but as long as Christ is being preached, God's sovereignty will win the day eventually. Um, But these people are clearly preaching Christ for their own profit, and it's resulted in abject, really bad moral failure Um, which I think gets to the fact, gets to the point that their hearts were desiring things that God wasn't ordaining while they were self-deceiving and self-deluding saying, Oh, but these are things that I want. I want influence. I want pictures of my bulging biceps. I want conference keynotes. I want a jet setting lifestyle. I want luxurious condos and fancy automobiles. Um, those are all things that I want, and therefore God will give them to me, because he's a God who grants blessings, and he's a God who uh, my cup runneth over. So we take we take uh, pictures, and I've talked about this before with the prayer of Jabez, We've, we take these pictures of spiritual excess, soul blessing excess, and we hijack them and copy them in deficient ways to then mean material blessing and material excess. And when we do that, we are in dire need of a sovereignty switch because we've already made a bad sovereignty switch and we need to switch it back to being correct. So I would say that this is probably one of the chief temptations and chief, uh, one of the primary, man, that felt like a a splattery uh, p primary. Um, good thing I got that pop filter up. Uh, I think this is this is one of the primary off the rail potentialities um, of the church going forward in the rest of the two thousands, um, the years, the year two thousands, the rest of this century, probably the rest of this decade for sure. Is is this temptation to want to pretend that we're Christians while still being self-determined in everything that we do. And I think it's I think we need to be aware of this and we need to start trying to correct it in our own hearts. We need to confess it in our own hearts. I know I've spent the summer, you know, contemplating this in my own heart and and being deeply convicted about how I have lived in this manner that Oh yeah, well I'm I've got justification lined up. I've you know I've I've got a right view of my sinful nature as it relates to God's holiness and perfection, and you know, I, I have a clear view on trusting Christ for his righteousness on my behalf, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But then when it gets down to the just daily grind of life, I find my heart tending to say, Well, here's the things I want, here's the responsibilities that I think are wise and sound and good. And so I insist that God, I, I bring my agenda to God. And then I insist that God sort of grease the wheels for that agenda. And Spurgeon hits on this. I was reading uh, this morning a, a, an excellent sermon by Spurgeon, which I would commend to you if you have an internet connection and are able to type in the Google search bar Uh, Google a Spurgeon sermon entitled, quote, God's will about the future. And it's a sermon he preached uh, back in 1890 on a Thursday evening uh, in his congregation. And it's on the, the passage in James 4, where James says, Come now, you that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get profit whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow you can tell this is an old king jimmy version for what is your life it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away for that you ought to say if the lord wills we shall live and do this or that but now you rejoice in your boastings all such rejoicing is evil therefore to him that knows to do good, and does it not to him, it is sin. And the thing, one of it's a it's a fantastic sermon. I would highly commend it to you. Turn off Netflix tonight. Don't binge watch whatever your latest show is, and spend thirty minutes reading that sermon. Uh, and if you're anything like me, you'll read the first paragraph or two, and you'll have instantly uh, prayer material. Like you read through that, and you're like, oh, it's like a stab in the heart. It's like Spurgeon rises out of the grave and stabs you in the heart and says, yes, that's you, sucker. Um, and I know it's not Spurgeon. It's, it's, the, it's the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting even to the bone and marrow, as the writer of Hebrews uh, so precisely and evocatively said, um, evocatively or provocatively? E, Evocatively. Yeah, I think evocatively, because that would be evoking something, right? evocative... I don't even know how evoca... I'm not even sure how to even begin spelling this word. Evocatively. Use the adjective evocative when you want to describe something that reminds you of something else. So maybe it's maybe that's wrong. Evocative, tending or serving to evoke Evoke means making you remember or imagining something. I'm just going to say, yes, it works. Um. (laughs) Yes, his his figure of speech, his imagery that the word of God is sharper than any two edged sword cutting even to the bone and marrow uh, is quite a lucid word picture. How about we put it that way? So if you're anything like me, you'll begin reading this Spurgeon sermon and you'll very quickly have prayer material to take and wrestle with your soul saying, wow, that describes me. I like boasting in what my plans are. I like taking comfort in imagining my plans coming to fruition exactly as how I see them best fit. Um, and so it'll serve to create humility in you because you realize, wow, I am proud I do have my agenda. I do view God as my errand boy to accomplish this agenda for me. And it'll instantly give you prayer material, which which will contribute to your humility and ultimately your trust in the Lord and ultimately in in switching back this sovereignty that we've gotten so out of whack in the current day American Christianity realms. Um, But he says in this sermon, which I thought was very good, uh, and I, I sort of summarized it in my own words, but that there's a big difference between asking for consent and praying for success. And he brings up this whole point that the Christian is supposed to ask consent. We're supposed to ask consent of the Lord for plans, for things that we want to do. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because I thought, when's the last time I asked God if for consent on things that I'm doing? I assume that what I'm doing is already right. And then I just ask for his stamp of approval and his blessing on them. Like that's so opposite of whatever my God ordains is right. That's saying, oh, I've already concocted in my brain what I want to have happen because I think it's going to be the best for me and my family. And now I'm going to go to the magical guy in the, guy in the sky and say, hey, come on, genie. Make this happen for me. Um, so I, I've been thinking a lot about that whole notion of asking God for consent, and it's so counter to our culture—not even in the church, but just in the just in the secular culture. Nobody, yeah, everything is so f you. It's my way. I'm gonna do it. I'm just gonna block every. I'm gonna block the haters out, and I'm just going for it. I don't need to ask for permission. I just need to ask for forgiveness. I mean, how many times have you heard that? It's much easier to ask forgiveness than it is permission. Well, that might work in some cheeseball work setup with a boss who might be a little bit meddling. Um, But if you take that ethic and you, you overlay it on the sovereign God of the universe, I think that we're going to find, as I've found myself, in a lot of soul conundrums. Because you can't take sort of good old boy, good old fashioned wisdom that might work in corporate America and overlay it on the creator of the universe. Not a good idea. So I've been appreciating this Spurgeon sermon and I've been appreciating, uh, appreciating, not like appreciating like in value, like increasing in value, but actually an appreciation, which I think is actually spelled the same way. Man, the English language is jacked up. I can appreciate something, which means I value it and admire it, but then something could appreciate which goes up in value. No wonder English as a second language is so stinking complicated. I love the English language though. Words are amazing. The meaning of words are amazing, which you can probably tell by listening to this stupid podcast because I tend to get sidetracked by uh, the definition of words quite frequently. (laughs) Um, So, what was I appreciating? I don't even remember what I was appreciating. My house value going up, that's what I've been doing. I've been praying that my house value would go up so that I can refinance, get a lower interest rate, go buy the cars that I want, upgrade my house, and I've just been demanding that God places his stamp of approval on all these materialistic increases because by golly, that's what the scripture says. Um, And of course, I jest entirely. what was I appreciating? I forgot what I was appreciating. Oh no, I, <coughs> 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 Wrong pipe. Uh, I can appreciate the sentiment in a in a in a workplace culture that if your boss is meddling and the, the red tape is just impenetrable, even though I butchered pronouncing that word right there. Uh, the red tape is is you can't get through it. There's just too many hoops to jump through. So you say screw it. it's easier to ask for permission or ask for forgiveness than it is permission. I get that sentiment in the workplace. But I would caution you greatly not to uh, just sort of blithely take that uh, approach and callously apply it to your relationship to the Lord God Almighty because there is definitely uh, a sense that that's wrong. (laughs) I mean, it it, uh, evokes, wow, I'm... Using words again, evoke it evokes imagery from Romans 9, where Paul says, Can the thing made say to the maker, why have you made me thus? Obviously not. And I think I've said this before in a previous episode or two. I mean, imagine a plate at your dinner table tonight, coming alive and standing up and say, how dare you eat food off of me? I demand that this change. You'd go, shut up, you're a plate. Whoever made you in some third world sweatshop in some fiery kiln intended for you to be my plate and deliver food into my grill. So shut your pie hole and sit back down and start being a plate. Now, not at all suggesting that uh, that's God's approach to us. I mean, he has much more love and compassion and mercy than my jaded conversation that I just had with my imaginary plate at your dinner table, oddly enough. Um, so I'm not suggesting that God is that callous in his response, but to some degree, there is sort of that, you know, when you read Job 38, 39, and 40, and you read Romans nine, there is a little bit of that sarcastic sense of, Hey, I'm God, I'm infinite. You're not. So kind of fall in line, be quiet. Um, so I think there is a little bit of that chastisement and I think ultimately it is loving loving even though it might come across as rather stark. Um, and man, I want to go on a rabbit trail about Tony Stark right now, but I won't. Um, so think about that. You sit in your couch tonight to, to watch SportsCenter or some game, or you're hopefully to sit down and read the Spurgeon sermon, and the couch starts to kind of wiggle and vibrate and try to kick you off the couch, and he it knocks you on the floor and you turn around and the couch says, Don't put your gluteus maximus on me. I demand to be something else. Shush. You were made to be a couch and to receive my buttocks. (laughs) And to let me lounge and kick my feet up on you and let the dog crawl up and shed hair all over you. Be quiet. You're a couch. Go back to being a couch. Stop being so obstinate. Um, there is this this sense that uh, we need to remember that we're the thing made. We're the couch. We're the plate. We can't go around wielding our will uh, to God who made us. It does not make any sense. Receive my buttocks. <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. Um, Hey there, phone. I thought I silenced you. Well, you know what? Just double-click that thing. You're a phone. You're meant for talking, not interrupting the podcast. Stop exerting your will, you obstinate iPhone. Um, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So, yes. (laughs) Oh, boy. Where was I? So, yes, we do we do need uh, this sense of um, (laughs) Uh, receivest thou buttocks. Um, So, yeah, we need the sense that we're the thing made. We're not the maker. We're not a made man. This whole thing of, oh, yeah, I'm made. Oh, stop being so arrogant. You're going to be dust and worm food soon. Um, and did you see that Post Malone was almost Worm Food, like, yesterday or the day before? He he circled New York for four hours after his tires blew out on his jet, and there was, like, all this uncertainty about whether he was gonna die in a fiery inferno upon landing. Um, so yeah, Post Malone came face-to-face with being Worm Food and being the thing made. Now, I doubt that prevented him from, uh, continuing quite heartily his pursuit of being a rock star and popping pillies and doing other things, but... Um, yeah, we're all going to be worm food. And that's what that passage in James says. Do you not know that your life is a vapor? And if you live somewhere where there is humidity in the morning, uh, you, I'm undoubtedly you've woken up to there being a morning mist or some sort of fog. And then the sun rises and then it's gone. Well, that happened quickly. Well, that's the equivalent of your life. We are a temporal finite thing made And we need to adopt a heart posture that asks for consent and doesn't switch that sovereign rule out and demand that we're sovereign and God must do what we dictate. And sadly, that's what the American church is doing with famous Instagram pastors. So I reject you, famous Instagram pastors, and I censure you uh, for promoting such a such an evil scheme. It's such an evil message uh, because you are God man is already at enmity with God, the scripture tells us. we are dead in our transpa- trespasses and sins and we're already at enmity. And yet this message that you're promoting of digging our heels in and demanding that God actuate what we want is just serving to per- put our hearts at more enmity to him. Because when God inevitably, not inevitably, but when a lot of times he doesn't grant what we demand, then that creates bitterness in our hearts. Now, God's sovereignty and his grace and mercy and love obviously is sufficient to overrule that and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to disappoint you here because you don't need this. And I'm going to eventually teach you that you're the made, you're the the thing made, not the maker. And we'll eventually hopefully get this right. But you sure could... uh, kind of give people a head start in the right direction if you stopped preaching such a poisonous uh, message. Thank you very much, uh, Pastorpreneur man. Um, so I would encourage you to read that Spurgeon sermon tonight, and I would encourage you to ponder these things in your heart and start to ask God for consent on things instead of just giving him your agenda and then demanding that he makes it happen. That would probably be a good step in the humility direction. Um, Stop being a rebellious plate and a rebellious couch cushion. Um, (laughs) Serve the food and receive the buttocks, um, so to speak, in a spiritual sense. (laughs) Uh, yes, so I think that's really all I got to say for right now. Um, and that reminded me of Forrest Gump, and that's all I got to say about that. Uh, something I do want to talk about in the next episode is this chick named Lady Julian. Uh, some Christian mystic from, I think, the 1300s, 1200s. Um, never heard of her until I was, started rereading a Tozer book. I haven't read Tozer in years because he sort of went the way of the... Uh, cotton gin, um, or the horse-drawn buggy, uh, as I moved from Arminian circles to more sort of Reformed circles. But oddly enough, our church, which is decidedly Reformed, sometimes to a fault, uh, actually had a quote from Tozer in the Sunday Bulletin a couple weeks ago, and I thought, huh, that's surprisingly Orthodox, Um, which made me pick up a Tozer book that I still have in my library called the attributes of God. And I began reading through it. And in there he references pretty much the whole book is based upon his observations on some things that this lady Julian said. And it's very, very good. Uh, She, I think, uh, gets at a very solid nugget of truth, if you will. Um, with a phrase she says that she, had, she discovered, and we'll talk more about this in another episode, but the phrase is, she said, quote, anything other than God ever me wanteth. And you go, just like my kids did, what the heck does that mean? Because we don't say ever me wanteth, like what? So modern vernacular basically means anything other than God won't be enough essentially what she's saying. So if we go back to what she actually said, anything other than God ever me wanteth, um, contrast that to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So when the Lord is his shepherd, there's an end to his wanting. And then Lady Julian is sort of positing the opposite, which is anything other than God. So other things are my shepherd ever me wanteth. Her want persists, it continues forever and ever. Um, so this, it's a very good concept. It's a great, great, uh, nugget of truth, which I think serves to provide ballast for the soul and clear direction for the Christian journey. Um, so that's something else we'll be discussing in another episode. Um, but you can begin to ponder that as well. Like make a list of the, the, all of the other things, anything other than God, start making a list of all the other things in your heart that you are insisting, because I think it dovetails well into this sovereignty switch message, you know, all the, make a list of all the other things that your heart is insisting God give to you so that you'll have satisfaction. And ultimately, the point that Lady Julian and Tozer gets at uh, together, even though they're separated by probably 600 years, the same point that they get to and are trying to promote is the idea that it is God himself that satisfies the soul. It's not his blessings. It's not his workings. It's not his doings. It's not his mercies. It's not his actuating your dreams. It's himself. The soul is made for God and until the soul communes with, connects with, has union with, relationship with God through Christ, through the Spirit... Ever me wanteth. Ever we will be wanting. Um, which probably. Which probably. Uh, describes. Why the American church is so. Broken and so. Dysfunctional and so immature. And so carnal and so materialistic. Because I, I think these. These pastrepreneurs. Haven't latched on to this truth. They don't know this. They have not experienced this. They think. They're looking for, they have a laundry list of things that are other than God, and they are believing that those things will cease their soul's wanting. So whether it's getting promoted on the conference tour, or the best-selling book, or the next satellite campus, or the visible church growth, these are all things that the leadership community of of the modern church have said These will make me satisfied. And God is saying, no, those are idols. Those are the high places. Those are broken cisterns which cannot hold water and will not satisfy so ever your soul will be wanting. Which then reasonably follows why so many of these pastors like Tulian and this Mr. Bird have get caught up in other things. Well, if the... the, Best selling books and packing out conferences and hundreds of thousands of social media followers and influence and voice and all of these things, I have them and I'm still wanting. So I keep looking and then I go off the rails and I look into multiple affairs with women in my church. It's so predictable because we've made so this sovereignty switch idea is just really an extrapolation of. Romans, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They, instead of worshiping the creator, they're worshiping the creation. And that's that's what we've done. And, and the, the church is supposed to be the one championing, championing, championing. Man, I, why, why is it so hard to say words that end in N with an I-N-G on the end? It's really difficult. Champion, championing. They're supposed to be promoting the idea That, hey, world, hey, people, you have, because of the fall, exchanged the beauty and value of God for this inferior beauty and inferior value of the creation. And it is wanting, it'll never satisfy. Yet the church, in all of its superficiality, has picked up the creation and the things and the inferior joys and the inferior Uh, beauty of creation and stuff and said, this is what will satisfy and God will give it to you. Wow, we're in dire need of a sovereignty switch. So, um, as I've said previously, draw a circle around yourself and focus on making these things a priority in your own heart. And then... Maybe encourage your children to make these things a priority in their heart, and then maybe encourage some other people in your church to begin making these things a priority in their heart. And as individual Christians begin to awaken to the beauty of having God be their portion, having God be their sustenance for their soul, then I mean that's that's conversion, right? That's conversion. That's the message of the gospel that God is our portion, that he came to befriend sinners so that we could stop wanting. Hence the woman at the well with the imagery of the water that this is this is living water. It will quench your thirst. So, anyway, Switch up the sovereignty, receive our buttocks. (laughs) Okay, just be a good couch and be a good dinner plate. End of story, and we'll talk more about Lady Julian uh, at a future time. Have a wonderful day. Send questions to podcast at chiefend.org. Bye.